Welcome to the Hotel California. You've been here for a while, of course. Now, I'm going to have to do a really short show because I have to be at the airport at six. So it's going to take me at least half an hour to car wash and put on my pajamas (laughs) to head off to the plane while I'm riding my kids to make sure that everything is fine. Um, uh, Sometimes, you know, you parents out there, you totally get me. So there we go. by the way, it's been a very busy morning. I still have, I'm going to be taking work with me to Puerto Rico. It's going to freaking cost me a fortune. I'm hoping to get stuff done in New Jersey too, because um, I can't do it from there. <laughs> uh, I'll be on locals though, you know, because that's more personal stuff. I stream news here. Uh, okay, so all of you see, huh? right back down to the certification of the people that we're certifying, right? Uh, and everyone is, you know, a lot of people hate the fact that I was right. And I, I don't understand why. I guess because they don't like me. <laughs> I'm the reason Brennan's going to get arrested. You watch. But I just say things, right? Where do we start? I wanted to bring an update to you in regards to the whole formula thing. Now, I did tell you that CNN is going to start telling you the news. And they totally are now. Uh you know, if your kid, if your baby needed, I don't know, a needle, maybe for a little bit of heroin or something, right? They totally get that, but they don't get baby formulas. So CNN actually has pressed the FDA to find out why there's a shortage in the formula. Kid you not. CNN. Listen to this. The United States, States are, are still, still struggling, struggling this morning. morning to get their hands on baby formula amid the ongoing nationwide shortage. 
Joining us now to talk about that is Dr. Rob Califf, the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. Dr. Califf, thank you for joining us this morning. And I want to start with the FDA, given they are expected to announce new moves, we were told soon, to help alleviate this shortage. So what can you tell us about that? Well, thanks, and it's good to be here with you this morning. Let me just start out by saying that we're very concerned about this. Um, I personally uh, helped raise three kids, and we got six grandkids, one of whom is in the infant formula age. So we know how important this is to parents. And, you know, it's a terrible uh, feeling when uh, one is concerned about feeding a child. So we're doing everything we can 24 by 7 to work on this and get it right. Now, in terms of what we're doing, we're working with uh, the manufacturers to increase their production. We're working on the supply chain to get the right product to the right place at the right time. We're working closely with Abbott to get that uh, plant that was shut down uh, up and operating as soon as possible. And we're also working um, to make it possible to use formula that was intended for other countries um, in a set of um, announcements that I expect will come out anticipate will come out by the end of the day today. And those announcements, how much are they going to change the shortage that's happening right now? Well, over time, uh, they should have a big um, effect because we'll have access to a lot more formula from different manufacturers. This will uh, gradually improve over a period um, of a few weeks, but we really do anticipate that within, um, you know, a few weeks, we'll have uh, things back to normal. And do you think in a few weeks, this Abbott Nutrition plant that, that has caused so many of these issues when they closed and did this voluntary recall, do you think it will be reopened by then? Yes, Abbott um, is on record as saying that once we reach final agreement on how to get the plant reopened, the processes and procedures to make sure that the product is safe when it comes out, um, they've said uh, around two weeks to get product out. And then a few more weeks after that to get up to full speed. We'll need to be watching this every step of the way because um, as you know, um, we don't wanna be sending uh, product out which is uh, dangerous for infants. And I have every anticipation that we've got a path forward now that will work. Okay, so two weeks potentially for the reopen, but then still several more weeks after that before the shelves start to look back to normal. I do wonder, Dr. Caleb, if this is a shortage that you believe could have been prevented. Um, I think there are always things that we could do better. Um, our, our focus right now is just on making sure we get every infant taken care of around the country, which we do have adequate supply for at this point. It's just that the supply is not necessarily in the right place. And so we're needing to help parents find uh, the formula that they need. Um, but as this clears up, um, I think everyone is going to be interested in looking back to see what could have done, been done better, including us. Um, you, you, Representative Delaro, I think, got it right when she said we want to go as fast as possible, but as safely as possible. And when you're balancing those two things, as shown by the fact that when that plant shut down, it did have an impact on supply chain. Um, you know, this is a complex and difficult set of decisions, but we always want to do better. And uh, many people will be looking at this, including us internally at the FDA. Yeah, and I think, of course, making sure this formula is safe for infants is of the highest priority. But it does seem that when this concern about this facility was first raised back in the fall, officials could have come up with a game plan for what would happen if it did have to close. So I think that raises the question of why the FDA didn't take more aggressive action if they knew about this complaint and these concerns back last fall. 
I would just say that we've been working on it pretty much around the clock um, since it started. And there are a cascade of decisions that had to be made uh, with some relatively unpredictable um, consequences. But uh, we're doing the very totally. Isn't that weird? Too. So they knew about a baby shortage formula, baby, baby, baby formula shortage, but they were preemptively working on it. It just so happened right now at this moment where Biden is president that all of this happens. Jeez, what a freaking coincidence if they knew about it. But, you know, you could still get your free needles if you need them. Just if you're a baby, you don't get anything. In other news, while they're attacking Christians and they're giving us some really nice false flags, uh, we have people talking about Islamophobia again. We should talk about Christianophobia. But take a listen to this. Chaotic final stretch, to say the least, in the Pennsylvania primary races, as two far-right candidates are surging now. The stakes really couldn't be higher in this critical battleground state that could decide control of the United States Senate. And yesterday, former President uh, Trump endorsed State Senator Doug Mastriano. Now, Mastriano led the failed efforts to overturn Pennsylvania's election results in 2020, and he was actually at the Capitol on January 6th. Meanwhile, as a political newcomer and Mastriano ally, Kathy Barnett, is gaining momentum in the Senate primary, her past comments are gaining a critical look. This says pedophilia is a cornerstone of Islam. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think that's me. I would never have said that. Now, top Republicans are spending the last days before this election on Tuesday warning that Barnett could actually lose the election in November. And it's not just Barnett. Mastriano, too, is causing a lot of headaches. Uh, Margaret Taleb is also joining our panel from Axios. Now, this is really a, such a fascinating situation because you have a candidate, especially in Kathy Barnett, who is literally trying to to steal Trumpism out of the jaws of Trump himself by basically saying, don't listen to what Trump's saying about who you should vote for. I'm the Trump candidate. How is that going to go down? You know, I mean, to, to be a little bit uh, uh, grand about this, this is sort of classic uh, revolutionary politics, right? right? Where at some point the revolution overtakes other revolutionaries who started the <laughs> thing. Uh, the fact that you have a Kathy Barnett out there saying MAGA doesn't belong to Donald Trump, a MAGA is a movement on its own, is really telling about the extent to which this has become a sort of a brush fire in the Republican Party, that Trump can be out there trying to back the candidates he wants and uh, with some significant success. But the, the mood and tone and style of politics that he has uh, pioneered as dominating the Republican Party uh, goes so far beyond uh, what just one man can control. It's worth noting in that race, uh, Trump has literally endorsed a different candidate for Senate, and he goes to the state to rally support uh, for Dr. Oz People in the crowd are there to see Trump. Many of them are going to vote for Kathy Barnett. Yeah, and the the, the seat of that rally was kind of extraordinary. Some people turning their backs and just a, a lack of interest in Oz. But the thing about Barnett also is how she is coming onto the stage at a particular moment. Her biography has become center stage around the time that we are talking about Roe versus Wade and abortion. Listen to this Club for Growth, which endorsed her, by the way. Listen to their ad uh, introducing her to uh, Pennsylvania voters. I grew up on a pig farm in southern Alabama. No insulation, no running water. This country allowed a little black girl to claw her way from underneath the rock. But that America, with all those opportunities, is fast coming to a close. It, it, she almost seems like the, the, her rise is coming at the opportune moment when she's basically making the case I could have been, uh, you know, not alive, a, a, not alive. Yeah. I could have been aborted by my mother, et cetera. 
And that is working in her favor. Uh, it's a tremendously powerful. Oh my God. Did she say not black? Yeah, totally not on the same page. Did you hear that? She was like, yeah, like she's not black. So they're going after Kathy Barnett because she's taking he taking charge of everything that's happening. But, you know, while all of this is happening, things they're making moves. They're pushing Storch to be IG of the DOD. Uh, they've got a ton to answer for. And we have the first trial in regards to Russia collusion happening today. It starts. For Clinton campaign attorney Michael Sussman begins today in our nation's capital. Sussman is charged with one count of lying to the FBI, indicted last September on a single count of falsely stating he was not representing any clients when he met with then-FBI General Counsel James Baker to push the Trump-Russia collusion narrative. National correspondent Logan Raddick joining us now live outside the federal courthouse with details. Logan, good morning. Emma, good morning. And this is the first trial to come out of the investigation by special counsel John Durham, who was appointed in 2019 by then Attorney General Bill Barr to investigate the uh, federal probes by the FBI and other agencies into the Trump 2016 campaign. Now, the. Uh oh, we need to discuss this. Okay. So take a listen to this. Bill Barr appointed him in 2019. But I have an article that says that Durham was not appointed by Bill Barr. You need to read it because in there, there's testimony from 2018, 2018, where they're clearly stating that John Durham is investigating. There's an article on torysays.com. I urge you to read it. There's an article on torysays.com with actual actual congressional records that show in 2018 that Barr was already on it. I'd like you to pay attention to that. So it's really important that you read it. So let's go back to the trial. The trial, the trial today, today begins, begins with, with jury selection and the jury will be looking into uh, what lawyers call materiality, whether or not that uh, false claim that the indictment was made on Sussman actually helped the FBI in their uh, quest to find more about the Trump campaign. Now, Sussman's lawyers say that the uh, information that he provided them did not shift their investigation and that they knew he was a Democratic lawyer. Now, John Durham, the special uh, prosecutor, the special uh, counsel, rather, he says that this is not the case. He believes that they did not know he was a Democratic attorney. But um, if there's a conviction here, this could be a major black guy for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign uh, with a lawyer of hers falsely uh, lying to the FBI about um, this Trump-Russia collusion. But also, if he is convicted, he could face up to five years in prison. Uh, that is unlikely right now. But again, this is a big deal because it's the first trial in this probe. And a lot is riding on it for both of these political parties. Republicans say it's time to investigate the investigators, whereas Democrats say if Sussman uh, is able to get out of this, then there's really not much there to the Republicans' investigation. So we'll be keeping an eye on this throughout the day here in Washington. Back to you. Did you see how he put it? The Republicans said the Republicans don't say shit. Okay. Now, I want to draw your attention to this. I hope uh, those of you that are, you know, savvy with... Um, with uh, the internet, will be watching this tomorrow. It's at uh, 9 a.m. tomorrow. It is going to be a briefing on unidentified flying objects from the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. So I guess they're going to bring aliens anyway. We're already here anyway, so it's time to open it up. 
Because then they'll be like, yeah, and this is why. Thank you for the rants, guys. Thank you. And this is <laughs> this is where they're going to be like, well, oh, I guess maybe that's why this person knows or that bullshit. But I want to spotlight a few things for you. This is why it's important that I come on and do this uh, shotgun show. Uh, because it is highly important that you remember a few incidences of the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, because uh, it's going to get very, very, very interesting. Um, maybe tomorrow we can stream it together if I'm able to. Uh, I think I'm going to be meeting with the people of Puerto Rico, so um, I, I don't know if I if I am able to um, to stream it, but I'll try. You know, but hold on. Let's uh, let's see which one it is that we want to see. Okay, so first we need to look at this. I want you to remember the words. Remember what he said. Of the range of contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia is directly or indirectly tied to Kremlin intelligence services. Volume one of the report outlines a sweeping and systemic effort by Russia to interfere in the 2016 election for the benefit of Donald Trump. It establishes that the Trump campaign welcomed the Russian interference because it expected to benefit electorally from information stolen and released through the Russian effort. It shows how the Trump campaign built the theft and dumping of Russian stolen documents into its campaign messaging and strategy. And as special counsel made clear, it sets out in great detail why the conduct in his report should concern every American. The report details well over 100 contacts between the Trump campaign and agents and officials of Russia. Some of this outreach was conducted in public, as when the president called on Russia to hack his opponent's emails, and only hours later, a unit of the Russian military intelligence, the GRU, attempted to do exactly that. Other contacts took place outside of the public view, as in the case of the June 9, 2016 meeting at Trump Tower in New York between a Russian delegation and the president's eldest son, Donald Trump Jr., his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort, Trump's campaign chairman. That meeting was part of a plan to secretly receive help in the form of dirt on Hillary Clinton from the Russian government. Still other contacts because of encrypted apps, destroyed communications, and deception remain shrouded in secrecy, such as Manafort's meetings with Konstantin Kalimnik, someone the FBI assesses to have ties to Russian intelligence, Manafort's provision of internal polling data to Kilimnik, and their discussion of the campaign strategy for women winning Democratic votes in Midwestern states. Most Americans consider the solicitation of foreign help during a presidential campaign, the offer of foreign assistance, and the campaign's eagerness to accept that offer, quote, if it is what you say it is, I love it, to constitute plain evidence of collusion not to mention the sharing of polling data and campaign strategy by the chairman of a campaign with a foreign nation, which at that very same time is intervening to help their campaign win. Nevertheless, and contrary to the president's oft-repeated mantra and the many misrepresentations of the attorney general, the special counsel reached no conclusion as to whether the Trump campaign's many Russian contacts constituted collusion, since that term is not defined in criminal law. For those who have not yet read the Mueller report, and most have not, they might be astonished to learn that a finding of no collusion, much less a finding of no obstruction, is nowhere to be seen on any page 
or in any passage of the Mueller report. Instead, in making its charging decisions, the special counsel examined only whether it could meet the Justice Department's high bar of being able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt at trial each element of the crime of conspiracy and found that it could not, even as it emphasized establish a conspiracy did not mean the absence of evidence of conspiracy. Volume one of the Mueller report is therefore by its very nature and the special counsel's mandate a report about the exercise of prosecutorial judgment, who should be charged and who should not. Well, I guess he's going to be charged very soon. And this is important because it comes back to a couple days after that. Here's what he said. Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, I yield myself as much time as I may consume. Along a wall in the upper lobby of the CIA headquarters building is a large picture of the head and torch of the Statue of Liberty, accompanied by the following words. We are the nation's first line of defense. We accomplish what others cannot accomplish and go where others cannot go. These two sentences distill the essence of America's intelligence community and the quiet sense of mission that tens of thousands of our fellow citizens bring to their jobs every day. H.R. 3494, the Damon Paul Nelson and Matthew Young Pollard Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal years 2018, 2019, and 2020 is our contribution to the work of the IC. This is a bipartisan bill reported unanimously out of the Intelligence Committee and embodying the collective efforts of Democratic and Republican members. Though H.R. 3494 contains many new initiatives authored during my chairmanship, it also preserves provisions developed during ranking member Nunes' tenure as chairman as well. Despite disagreements over the Russia investigation, the committee has come together to support our intelligence community. HIPSI oversees highly sensitive, highly classified activities, and we collaborate with the IC to ensure that it has the resources and authorities necessary to collect vital intelligence. That won't work, however, unless the committee trusts the IC elements it oversees and those same elements trust the committee. At the same time, HIPSI must ensure that legal and policy constraints are vigorously enforced. That requires us to maintain both a professional distance and a healthy skepticism about the activities we oversee. When warranted, the committee must impose additional checks and limitations at times over intelligence community objections. It is a delicate balance, balance which the HIPSI strikes through use of many different oversight tools. The most important by far is our annual Intelligence Authorization Act. H.R. 3494 gets the balance right. It authorizes funding for the IC at roughly 1.4% above the president's budget request for the coming year. It prioritizes the IC's collection and analytic capabilities against China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, while sustaining critical intelligence capabilities that support counterterrorism and counterproliferation. The bill also ensures that the men and women of the IC have what they need to collect and analyze the intelligence that policymakers require. At the same time, H.R. 3494 ensures close oversight by Congress, rejecting the funding of legacy IC programs with overseas contingency operation resources or OCO funding and requiring for the first time the submission to the intelligence committees of detailed information on unfunded IC programs. 
Another provision authored by Representative Welch calls for more information on the IC's budget for counterterrorism matters to be released to the public, consistent with the protection of national security. Still another authorizes the Public Interest Declassification Board, which plays a vital role in ensuring the historical, that historical documents about IC programs are declassified appropriately. The legislation is especially strong in three other areas. The first has to do with foreign malign activities, including those by Russia. The bill calls for extensive IC reporting and creates new notification requirements regarding covert or overt efforts by foreign governments to undermine trusted institutions or to interfere in the democratic process, our own or those of other nations. This bill also strongly supports the IC workforce. H.R. 3494 obliges the IC elements to offer their employees 12 weeks of paid parental leave on top of the unpaid leave already guaranteed to them by law. Other language ensures that the families of CIA personnel who are killed or injured as a result of wars, hostile acts, or other incidents can be appropriately compensated. The bill also bolsters the IC's ability to recruit, hire, retain, and promote a workforce that represents the diversity of the nation that it serves. Lastly, technology. Many have sounded alarms about the rise of so-called deep fake algorithms and the transition in our country and elsewhere to a fifth generation telecommunications network. To help the IC address both challenges, HR 3494 instructs the DNI to hold competition uh, and award prizes for cutting edge research into deep fake and 5G technologies. H.R. 3494 is not perfect. It is the result of negotiation and compromise. But I'm pleased that despite our public differences, we've once again been able to put those aside to focus on the important work of overseeing the intelligence community. The result is a strong bipartisan bill, which I am proud to support. Let me conclude by thanking Ranking Member Nunes, my committee colleagues, and the entire HIPSI staff for their collaborative efforts. I urge all members of the House to join me in voting. A bill that he sponsored. You see, they did this in 2019 because this was the only way that they can destroy the nodes of the Kraken in Tennessee after the elections. I mean, you've got to destroy the evidence, right? And you know what was so funny? Taylor Swift knew it. Maybe we should subpoena her and ask her how she knew that the Kraken was going to be exploded. Well, portions of it, right? It's not all there. And speaking of deep fakes and artificial intelligence that Schiff is so concerned about, let's go into that for a second. Let's go into that. Let's go see what Shifty Shift has to say about this. Before we we, we begin, I want to remind all members that we are in open session, and as such, we will discuss unclassified matters only. Um, Please have a seat. Uh, Our members may be wandering in a bit late. Um, we were here until one in the morning, uh, but those on armed services were here until about five or six in the morning. Uh, so um, you have a few groggy members uh, here on the, on the committee. In the heat of the 2016 election, as the Russian hacking and dumping operation became apparent, my predominant concern was that the Russians would begin dumping forged documents along with the real ones that they stole. It would have been all too easy for Russia or another malicious actor to seed forged documents among the authentic ones in a way that would make it almost impossible to identify or rebut the fraudulent material. Even if a victim could ultimately expose the forgery for what it was, the damage would be done. 
Three years later, we're on the cusp of a technological revolution that could enable even more sinister forms of deception and disinformation by malign actors, foreign or domestic. Advances in AI and machine learning have led to the emergence of advanced digitally doctored types of media, so-called deep fakes, that enable malicious actors to foment chaos, division, or crisis, and they have the capacity to disrupt entire campaigns, including that for the presidency. Rapid progress in artificial intelligence algorithms has made it possible to manipulate media, video, imagery, audio, text, with incredible, nearly imperceptible results. With sufficient training data, these powerful deepfake generating algorithms can portray a real person doing something they never did or saying words they never uttered. These tools are readily available and and accessible to both experts and novices alike, meaning that attribution of a deepfake to a specific author, whether a hostile intelligence service or a single internet troll, will be a constant challenge. What's more, once someone views a deep fake or a fake video, the damage is largely done. Even if later convinced that what they have seen is a forgery, that person may never lose completely the lingering negative impression the video has left with them. It is also the case that not only may fake videos be passed off as real, but real information can be passed off as fake. This is the so-called liar's dividend, in which people with a propensity to deceive are given the benefit of an environment in which it is increasingly difficult for the public to determine what is true. To give our members and the public a sense of the quality of deepfakes today, uh, I want to share a few short examples, uh, and even these are not the state of the art. Uh, the first comes from Bloomberg Business Week and demonstrates an AI-powered clone voice of one of the journalists. Uh, so let's watch the... Uh, now, clip. to really put my computer voice to the test, I am going to call my dear, sweet mother and see if she recognizes me. Hey, Mom. Hi. What are you guys up to today? Um, well, it's Saturday. We didn't have any electricity early this morning, and we're just hanging around the house. I'm just finishing up work and waiting for the boys to get home. Okay. I think I'm coming down with a virus. Oh, why you feel bad, hey? I was messing around with you. You were talking to a computer. I felt like I was talking to you. It's amazing. (laughs) All right, it's bad enough that was a fake, but he's deceiving his mother and telling her that he's got a virus. That seems just downright cruel. The second clip comes from Quartz and demonstrates a puppet master type of deep fake video. As you can see, these people are able to co-opt the head movements of their targets. Married with convincing audio, you can turn a world leader into a ventriloquist dummy. Next, a brief CNN clip highlighting new research from Professor Haney Farid, an acclaimed expert on deepfakes from UC Berkeley, and featuring an example of a so-called face swap video in which Senator Elizabeth Warren's face is is seamlessly uh, transplanted on the body of SNL actress Kate McKinnon. I haven't been this excited since I found out my package from L.L. Bean had shipped. (laughs) I'm ready to fight. So the only problem with that video is Kate McKinnon actually looks a lot like Elizabeth Warren. Um, But the one on the left was actually um, Kate McKinnon. Both were Kate McKinnon. One just had Elizabeth Warren's face uh, swapped onto her. Uh, But it shows you just how convincing that kind of technology can be. These algorithms can also learn from pictures.
pictures of real faces to make completely artificial portraits of persons who do not exist at all. Can anyone here pick out which of these faces are real and which are fake? And of course, as you may have all guessed, all four are fake. All four of those faces are synthetically created. None of those people are real. Thinking ahead to 2020 and beyond, one does not need any great imagination to envision even more nightmarish scenarios that would leave the government, the media, and the public struggling to discern what is real and what is fake. A state-backed actor creates a deep fake video of a political candidate accepting a bribe with a goal of influencing an election. Or an individual hacker claims to have stolen audio of a private conversation between two world leaders when, in fact, no such conversation took place. Or a troll farm uses text-generating algorithms to write false or sensational news stories at scale, flooding social media platforms and overwhelming journalists' ability to verify and users' ability to trust what they are seeing or reading. What enables deep fakes and other modes of disinformation to become truly pernicious is the ubiquity of social media and the velocity at which false information can spread. We got a preview of what that might look like recently when a doctored video of Speaker Nancy Pelosi went viral on Facebook receiving millions of views in the span of 48 hours. Hello, Mr. Schiff. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you, Chairman. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you. I know that you work for investigation regarding Trump and Russian government. Yes. We know some important information about it. Uh, and that, uh, that uh, is documented as well in materials you want to provide to us? Yes. Could I explain you where we are? Yes, of course. But, you know, again, I would just caution that uh, uh, our Russian friends may be listening to the conversation, so I wouldn't share anything over the phone that you don't want them to hear. No, I don't think that it will impact on our investigation. Yes. Well, uh, please go ahead then. In November 2013, Mr. Trump visited Moscow. He visited a uh, competition Miss Universe, and there he met uh, with the Russian journalist and celebrity Ksenia Sobchak. Uh, I'm sorry, can you explain that again? While he was in Moscow in November 2013, he met with a, a journalist and, and... Well, she's poor journalist. But anyway, uh, she became famous because of uh, Putin is her godfather. Okay, Putin is godfather. Okay. She's also known as a person who provides uh, uh, girls for escort for oligarchs. And she met with Trump and she brought him one hour Russian girl, celebrity Olga Buzova, who also known as a person with a strange reputation. Olga, and, and how do you spell her name? Olga Buzova. Buzova. Um, so yes. Olga Buzova is a uh, friend of the, uh, the reporter Sovchek? Yes, she's a friend of reporter and I think the special agent of Russian Secret Service, Ksenia Sobchak. Um, that Sobchak is or Olga is? No, Sobchak is Ksenia. Okay, and so Buzova met with Trump uh, in, in uh, New York at some point after the 2013 Miss Universe uh, yes. pageant. Absolutely, and she got uh, compromising materials on Trump after their uh, short relations. Not an AI-assisted deep fake, but rather a crude manual manipulation that some have called a cheap fake. Nonetheless, the video's virality on social media demonstrates the scale of the challenge we face and the responsibilities that social media companies must confront. Already, the companies have taken different approaches, with YouTube deleting the altered video of Speaker Pelosi, while Facebook 
labeled it as false and throttled back the speed it spread once it was deemed fake by independent fact checkers. Now is the time for social media companies to put in place policies to protect users from this kind of misinformation, not in 2021 after viral deep fakes have polluted the 2020 elections. By then it will be too late. And so in keeping with a series of open hearings that have examined different strategic challenges to our national security and our democratic institutions, the committee is devoting this hearing to deep fakes and synthetic media. We need to soberly understand the implications of deep fakes, the underlying AI technologies, and the internet platforms that give them breach before we consider appropriate steps to mitigate the potential harms. We have a distinguished panel of experts and practitioners to help us understand and contextualize the potential threat of deep fakes. But before turning to them, I'd like to recognize Ranking Member Nunes for any opening statement he would like to give. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I join you in your concern about deep fakes and want to add to that fake news, fake dossiers, and everything else that we have in politics. Um, and so Putin was made aware uh, of the, the availability of the compromising material? Yes, of course. Uh, Buzova shared those materials with uh, Sobchak, and Sobchak shares those materials with uh, Putin because she's a goddaughter of Putin, and Putin decided to press on Trump. Um, and, uh, and the materials that you can provide to the committee or to the FBI, uh, would they corroborate this allegation? Sure, of course. Uh, when they were in Ukraine, we got their conversation by the phone where they discussed those uh, compromising materials. We are ready to provide it to FBI. So you, you have recordings of both Sovchek and Buseva uh, where they're discussing the compromising Remember, this is 2018. On, he was involved with the Russia collusion Absolutely. in 2018. And so who met with uh, ex-advisor of Trump, uh, Mr. Flynn. It was a Russian singer, very famous singer, Arkady Ukupnik, who met with Mr. Flynn on uh, Brighton Beach in Brooklyn in a special uh, Russian cafe, Langeron. What's the name of the cafe? Uh, uh, Langeron. Langeron? Yes, it's on the Brighton Beach. Okay. and It's uh, a special, when, when it's a Russian district in uh, Brooklyn. And do you know what was discussed? They discussed many things, but the most interesting thing is they use a special. They used a special password uh, before before their meetings. When they met each other, they password. said, <laughs> "Weather is good on Deribasovskaya." Weather it rains is good. Yeah. In where? Weather is good on Deribasovskaya. There is a name of a street in Odessa. So this guy was all over the Russia collusion. Forever and a day, of course. Well, we need to move in to the whistleblower complaint now. Let's get that going. There was no whistleblower. Without objection, <clears throat> the chair reserves the right to recess the hearing at any time. The presidential oath of office requires the president of the United States to do two things. Faithfully execute his or her office and protect and defend the Constitution. That oath, of course, cannot be honored if the president does not first defend the country. If our national security is jeopardized, if our country is left undefended, the necessity to faithfully execute the office becomes moot. Where there is no country, there is no office to execute. And so the duty to defend the nation is foundational to the president's responsibilities. 
But what of this second responsibility to defend the Constitution? What does that really mean? The founders were not speaking, of course, of a piece of parchment. Rather, they were expressing the obligation of the president to defend the institutions of our democracy, to defend our system of checks and balances that the Constitution enshrines, to defend the rule of law, a principle upon which the idea of America was born, that we're a nation of laws, not men. If we do not defend the nation, there is no Constitution. But if we do not defend the Constitution, there is no nation worth defending. Yesterday, we were presented with the most graphic evidence yet that the President of the United States has betrayed his oath of office, betrayed his oath to defend our national security, and betrayed his oath to defend our Constitution. For yesterday, we were presented with a record of a call between the President of the United States and the President of Ukraine in which the President, our President, sacrificed our national security and our Constitution for his personal political benefit. To understand how he did so, we must first understand just how overwhelmingly dependent Ukraine is on the United States, militarily, financially, diplomatically, and in every other way. And not just on the United States, but on the person of the president. Ukraine was invaded by its neighbor, by our common adversary, by Vladimir Putin's Russia. It remains occupied by Russian irregular forces in a long, simmering war. Ukraine desperately needs our help, and for years we have given it, and on a bipartisan basis. That is, until two months ago, when it was held up inexplicably by President Trump. It is in this context, after a brief congratulatory call from President Trump to President Zelensky on April 21st, and after the president's personal emissary, Rudy Giuliani, made it abundantly clear to Ukrainian officials over several months that the president wanted dirt on his political opponent, it is in this context that the new president of Ukraine would speak to Donald Trump over the phone on July 25th. President Zelensky, eager to establish himself at home as a friend of the president of the most powerful nation on earth, had at least two objectives get a meeting with the president, and get more military help. And so what happened on that call? Zelensky begins by ingratiating himself, and he tries to enlist the support of the president. He expresses his interest in meeting with the president and says his country wants to acquire more weapons from us to defend itself. And what is the president's response? Well, it reads like a classic organized crime shakedown. Shorn of its rambling character and in not so many words, this is the essence of what the president communicates. We've been very good to your country, very good. No other country has done as much as we have. But you know what? I don't see much reciprocity here. I hear what you want. I have a favor I want from you, though. And I'm going to say this only seven times, so you better listen good. I want you to make up dirt on my political opponent, understand lots of it. On this and on that, I'm going to put you in touch with people, not just any people. I'm going to put you in touch with Attorney General of the United States, 
my Attorney General Bill Barr. He's got the whole weight of the American law enforcement behind him. And I'm going to put you in touch with Rudy. You're going to love him, trust me. You know what I'm asking, and so I'm only going to say this a few more times, in a few more ways. And by the way, don't call me again. I'll call you when you've done what I asked. This is, in sum and character, what the president was trying to communicate with the president of Ukraine. It would be funny if it wasn't such a graphic betrayal of the president's oath of office. But as it does represent a real betrayal, there's nothing the president says here that is in America's interest, after all. It is instead the most consequential form of tragedy. For it forces us to confront the remedy the founders provided for such a flagrant abuse of office, impeachment. Now, this matter would not have come to the attention of our committee or the nation's attention without the courage of a single person, the whistleblower. As you know, Director McGuire, more so than perhaps any other area of government since we deal with classified information, the Intelligence Committee is dependent on whistleblowers to reveal wrongdoing when it occurs, when the agencies do not self-report, because outside, outside parties, parties are not allowed to scrutinize your work. And well, it kind of depends what kind of whistleblower you are. See, if you're telling on them, you're not allowed to talk. Most whistleblowers get, you know, uh, a deal, right? This whistleblower was a wiretap. This was a wiretap, an actual wiretap. There was no whistleblower. They made it up, and then they threw in someone to pretend they had a wiretap in shifty skiff, and it's all coming out. Now, that's the important news for you, to remember Adam Schiff, to remember that this is going to be coming up in the news. Now, in other news, as you all know, with the elections, well... It feels like people hate the fact that I was right, and I don't understand why. But did they think that it was going to die down after two years, and then it's all gone? See, I archived all that evidence. And what's interesting is now they find out, oh, the EAC manufactured evidence. They weren't even accredited to credit things. Yeah, that's something I said on November 10th, and it's all coming back to that. It's so Interesting. So interesting. Now, in other, 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 in other news, I wanted to show the video. Everyone's like, where's John Durham? Where is he? We need to see him, right? We need to see him. We should see him. We should definitely see him. Because he's been appointed for a long time and he's been working for the people for a long time. And God, give this man energy and... I, I just can't express to you guys how incredibly grateful I am for people like him. Special counsel John Look, there he is! Russia probe starts today. The origins of that. <laughs> well then, we see him. Well, now you see me, now you don't kind of thing, right? So, um, for those of you who subscribe to my locals, you get to see me, uh, you know, on a whim, not on a show, uh, 
and uh, I am going to be traveling in about 45 minutes. <laughs> so I wanted you guys to know that the false flags that are happening right now are insane. Uh, and we must stay diligent because the concern that I have is that I'm seeing that um, a lot of people, a lot of people are starting to get weaponized. They're starting to um, do things that they shouldn't be doing. And it's concerning me uh, more than anything because now that many states are changing the way the laws are with guns, like for example, in Ohio, you no longer need uh, a permit to conceal. You can simply do it. So that's a really big deal. That is a very, very big deal. And it should be concerning for everyone. I do not know how to say this in a better way. But if you see anyone that comes up with radical ideas to do things or let's go protest this and protest that. Well, you need to run the other way because uh, it does not look good on how and where this is going. I am terrified that um, people will be rounded up into positions that they will not be able to um, escape from. And the danger is very, very clear. It takes one idiot, one idiot to do all that. So I urge you to keep to your pens, keep to what you've been doing, and that's it. Keep to your friends and keep what you're doing, and that's it. It's really important that you remember that. I can't stress it enough. I can't, I, you know, I can only say it. I can't point it out. But these false flags, just be sure that you're not wrapped up into one. That's all. You don't want to get wrapped into any of these false flags. So uh, we have to make sure that people understand that, that we don't, don't work with people that are aggravated. I'm, I'm trying to say it in the nicest way. Thank you so much for the rumbles. I just saw it. So in, in, that, in, that, in that light, I want to play a quick clip. Hold on. I'm looking for it. Let me find it. Uh, where is it? Gosh darn it. I wanted to play a quick clip. Yes, Phoebe. Are you kidding? I'm like trying to. <laughs> Phoebe has the accent ready. I'm not. I'm terrified of the travel with my kids. Because I'm the one stressing. I'm the one packing suitcases, right? One suitcase for two girls for for seven days. Do you know what that means, guys? I, I'm not even going to complain. Anyway, let's take a look at this. Oh, the tragedy was playing out, though. The media and others quick to jump on the shooting to push a certain narrative. The Wall Street Journal says it simply is not that simple. 
Its editorial board wrote this, partisans are already using the massacre to leap to broader political conclusions, as they always do. There's no doubt that a racist subculture exists in America and is spread on social media. Politicians and media figures have an obligation to condemn it and such conspiratorial notions as white replacement theory. But mass shooters have had many motivations in recent years, and mental illness seems to be the most significant common denominator to the extent there is one. Will Kane on the Mez in Focus today, co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend. Uh, good to see you. You and I both have read this Washington Post article entitled, Hate is Not at the Root of Most Mass Shootings. Your thoughts? Pretty fascinating there from the Washington Post. What it suggests is there are deeper personal issues. In other words, not something that you can use to indict society and certainly not a political party or a partisan point to make, but rather you need to look at the individuals and what might be troubling the sick individual that heads down this path. And that intuitively makes sense. You know, there are clearly people, Harris, who are going to use this moment to try to indict their political opponents and use this moment to say, well, this is a result of certain rhetoric that might be in our political sphere. We they were already always, doing it. This they're weekend. already doing it. And they do it after every national tragedy. And, and, and to some extent, both sides are guilty of doing just that. But, but if we really want to try to solve the problem, then you do this. You look into the individual. You look into, yes, some things that can contribute. He was racist. He made that clear. He used 180 pages or more to lay out that he did believe in this idea of white separatism or white supremacy. He also said he got bored during the lockdowns and in 2020 spent time falling down the Internet rabbit hole. There's a lot of stuff we can peel the onion layers back on there and say, what are we doing? What are we failing? What did we miss? Where were the red flags where you end up? with this tragic situation in Buffalo. Yeah, you know, what struck me too about this article, our research shows that mass shooters walk a common route to violence through early childhood trauma if they fail to achieve what they've been socialized to believe is their destiny, material wealth, power, success, happiness. Um, they reach an existential crisis point. I, I don't see race necessarily mentioned there. And the reason I bring that up is this case has to be adjudicated. And, and the more narrative and pontification that people put out there, the farther it seems that we get away from really understanding what we're looking at. And it is a tragedy no matter how you look at it. No doubt. And I don't think you nor the Washington Post in this editorial are saying that race didn't play a role. No. This individual made it clear race played a role. But if we're trying to solve this problem in the aggregate, in the long term to make sure it doesn't, it doesn't happen, happen again, then we need to be asking other questions than the one that we're simply having as a nation at all times about reconciling our issues over race. It's about something much more as well. You and I are saying something similar in, in terms of don't indict, you know, certain segments of the population based on what one person is doing. And I would say that about mental illness as well. Mental illness is not a reason or a trigger or a motive, if you will, for why people do it. It, it may be an underlying. There are plenty of people with mental illness who don't do this. So you've got to really look at, well, how do we get to a kid who said he wanted to threaten his high school and kill people there first? It's tough. How do you get there? Do you do it through counseling at school? You know you have a problem. And that was before, apparently, he had gone down the rabbit hole uh, of finding radicalism or whatever it was that he I found. I think we try to do I'm two things at the same time. We try to correct the problem by yeah. looking to analyze and blame place blame somewhere and we also try to take out our previously held grudges on others up oh, let's go with the race cards huh you know race cards race cards so weird
And did you guys hear the Marjorie Taylor Greene? Well, now people are appealing the decision that she's allowed on the ballot. Senator Cruz got his answer. He's allowed to be on the ballot, even though he had some funny business, apparently, with um, his whole uh, campaign finance, which is weird, right? So weird. It's like they're trying to keep people off the ballot. Chnota. Some stronger than others. Hit pieces there. Hit pieces here. You know, all that good stuff. But we must remember the 2011 Atlantic Council Awards that um, Joe Biden attended. That's kind of interesting. So I urge all of you to Google and find that because it's uh, quite a fascinating acceptance speech uh, that he put together. Now, as far as guns, like I said, they're driving the narrative. They're talking about racism, but we've got a ton of states, including Ohio's of June 1st. Now I don't have to have the clip of my gun in my car in the back, in, in the trunk. I clip, see, I, magazine, right? I, I, I learned it as clip from a young age. Don't correct me. I learned it wrong. So I just wanted to point that out. Um, but now I can actually have it in my gun without a conceal and carry permit. And that's happening across the U.S. And it's really important that you understand where they're going with this. And it's not going to be a lefty. It's going to be a right wing person that believes that they know best. So on that note, guys, I'm popping off so I can do a quick car wash, get dressed and head to the airport. Um, I'll, I'll see you on locals and see you online. God bless. Faith over fear, oh God is always there when you got faith over fear. He'll answer all your prayers, so go and tell all the people that the Lord will lead the way. I put faith over fear every day.